Heavenly Father, you are the one who forgives sins. And you forgive them through Jesus Christ, your Son, who died on our behalf, who was buried and rose again, and now lives at the right side of the throne of majesty, interceding for all of us. Father, I pray your blessing on my words this, this morning. Father, please help me speak the truth, your truth, Father. Please give us ears to listen. May you be pleased and glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, please be seated. I do want to take a moment to thank everyone for your prayers and for your concerns and uh, your expressions of support during uh, the last couple of weeks as I had finals during the, the quarter at seminary. This one was a particularly tough week. I don't know what it was. We had a lot of writing to do and, and some pretty difficult tests. And uh, as I talked with my classmates, they all felt that this quarter, different than other quarters, was, was just a tough one. And I, I can tell you that at the last day, at the last test, we were all celebrating and, and praising God that uh, he had sustained us and got us through it. Uh, it was like a burden had been lifted from our shoulders. I don't know how many of you uh, feel this way, but when I have tests and when I have papers due and I have a lot of things in front of me, it's just like there's a weight on my shoulders. I just, I can't sit down and enjoy and, and relax and, and do things because I know I've got to get these papers done. I know I've got to get the studying done. I know I've got this looming in front of me. And it's kind of like a, a cloud over my head. I can't sit there and, and enjoy the things I want to do. And so I ask you this morning, have you ever felt a cloud over your head? You know, where there's no joy. You can't enjoy the normal things like a football game or like working with your hands, maybe working out in the garden or being with friends and family. Because at the back of your mind, there's something there. There's always something looming. And it nags at you. It just kind of puts that pressure on you. And there's this feeling of oppression that holds you down. You just can't be free of it. It's a weight that's bearing down on you. See, David knew this. He knew what it was like to have that oppression. David wrote a lot of psalms, including Psalm 51. That's the one that Glenn read this morning. Let me tell you a quick thing about Psalm 51. It was written after David's sin with Bathsheba. It's a, recounted in 2 Samuel. Now, you remember that. David, when he was, should have been out to war in the spring, when all the kings go out to war, David stays behind. And as he's relaxing one evening, he sees a beautiful woman who's bathing on a rooftop nearby. He inquires who she is. And then he brings her in and he commits adultery with her. He finds out that she's the wife of Uriah. Uriah was one of his mighty men, was one of his great warriors. And after he did this sin, Bathsheba became pregnant. And now David's got a problem. So he brings Uriah back from the battlefield and he tells Uriah, spend some time with his wife, hoping that he will decide that the baby is really his and David will get away with his sin. But Uriah is an honorable man. Uriah won't, won't spend time with his wife, not while his Fellow uh, soldiers are out on the battlefield. So he sleeps in the doorway. David tries to get him drunk, and that doesn't work. And finally, David results or, or decides that the only way to deal with this is to get Uriah murdered. So he sends orders that Uriah is to be left at the front of the battlefield and all the troops are to withdraw. And that's a pretty scary feeling when you're out there in front fighting and everyone just backs away from you. And that's what happened to Uriah, and he died in the battle. And so, after a period of mourning, David takes Bathsheba in as his wife. Lo and behold, she's pregnant, and they have a son. David thought he was going to get away with this. But you see, you can run, but you can't hide. 
and you certainly can't hide from God. God sent Nathan the prophet to confront David about his sin. He told him a parable about a, a poor man who, who had one little animal that a rich man took from him and slaughtered so he could feed his rich friends. David was incensed about this, and Nathan said, you're the guy. And instantly, David knew what he was talking about. So Psalm 51 is about that incident. It's about David's sin and forgiveness. And that's a beautiful psalm that Glenn read to us. Well, like Psalm 51, there's another important psalm in the book of Psalms dealing with sin and forgiveness, and that's Psalm 32. And that's what we're gonna talk about this morning. So go ahead and turn to Psalm 32 if you haven't done so yet. And I'll give you some background on this, this short but impressive psalm. If you look at the front of your, at the, at the beginning of the psalm, you'll see that it says that this is a maskil, a maskil of David. Now, a maskil is a type of song, psalm, and there's two possible meanings for what a maskil is. One is that it's a didactic psalm. Didactic means teaching. It's, it's teaching us. It's giving us teaching. It's giving us wisdom. It's giving us understanding. It's giving us instruction. That's one of the meanings for maskil. One of the other meanings is that it's a skillful, artistic composition or song. Now there's a number of maskils in the book of Psalms. 42, 44, 45, 52 through 55, 74, 78, 88, 89, 142. There's a, a short list there. David wrote four of these maskils. He wrote four of them. Others are attributed to other people. But see, Psalm 32 can also have another classification, not just as, as a, a didactic psalm or not just an artistic composition or song. It can be classified also as a thanksgiving hymn, one where we're offering thanks and praising God. Now, worshipers gave thanks to God for the joy of having their sins forgiven. And there's a lot of thanksgiving psalms in the book of Psalms. You can, you can probably think of them yourself. Psalm 100 is a psalm of thanksgiving. So we have a lot of those that are in there. But other classifications for Psalm 32 can also be penitential psalm. Penitential psalm is one where David talks about sin. He talks about confession and reconciliation. And the other penitential psalms in the book are 6 and 38 and 51 and 130 and 143. Now David wrote all of these penitential psalms. Whereas before he only wrote four of the maskils, he wrote all of the penitential psalms that are in the book of Psalms. Now Psalm 51 and Psalm 32 are considered the confessional giants. These are the ones that hold the, 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 the strongest doctrine, the, the strongest expression of confession and repentance and reconciliation to God. And I really appreciate the, the songs that Darren and the worship team led us in this morning because if you saw the themes running through there, confession, forgiveness, reconciliation. Those are all words and things and themes that we find in Psalm 32. But beyond that, Psalm 32 is also a psalm of joy and righteousness. Joy and righteousness. Now, we can consider all of these as classifications for Psalm 32. For, as a mascal, thanksgiving, penitential, joy and righteousness. However you want to consider Psalm 32, the most important thing to remember is that Psalm 32 is the inspired word of God. These are not just David's accounts, it's not just David's thoughts, 
Psalm 32 is the inspired word of God, and we know that the word of God is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. And Psalm 32 does all of this for us. Now, I've broken the the psalm down into some different categories, and we're gonna look at each of them. The first one is the blessing proclaimed. The blessing proclaimed. The second section will be the blessing forsaken. The third category will be the blessing received. The fourth is the blessing commended. And then there's the blessing promised. And then we conclude with the blessing celebrated. All of this from these 11 verses. As I studied it, I was really amazed at at what we could pull out of here. So let's look at the first part. The blessing proclaimed. We'll find that in Psalm 32, verses one and two. Follow along as I read. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now if you paid attention there, and as you read that, you might have seen four interesting things in these first two verses. Look back again. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. See, we have four different terms for sin in these, in these simple two verses, four different terms. And I wanna talk about what these terms are because they are different terms for sin and they mean different things. How many of you, like me, have sat there and thought transgression, iniquity, sin, they're all the same thing, but they're actually different. So let's look at what these are. Let's look at the first one, transgression. Transgression is an act of rebellion or disloyalty. An act of rebellion or disloyalty. Have you ever rebelled? You ever deliberately disobeyed a parent, a teacher, a leader, an authority figure in your life? You see, we don't like being told what to do. We think we know better. We got it dialed in. You see, and that was Adam and Eve in the garden. And the serpent tempted Eve. Did God really say this? He knows that if you eat of this forbidden fruit, you'll be like God. That's a pretty tempting thing to all of us. We want to make our own decisions. See, they wanted that control. That first sin in the garden was an open rebellion against God. It was a transgression. And as you consider transgressions, consider this, that when you commit a transgression, you love yourself more than you love God. You love yourself more than when you love God. Then we look at the second one. The person whose sin is covered The second problem we have is sin. Now sin is an act or an admission that misses the mark of God's expressed and revealed will. And let me say that again. It's an act or an omission that misses the mark of God's expressed and revealed will. Now sometimes when we sin, it's intentional. I mean, we mean to do this. 
Think about this, if you've ever refused to do something you're required to do. Jesus said that we're to love our enemies. If we refuse to love our enemy, then we're sinning. How about caring for one of the least of these, one of the least of the saints? When we refuse to do that, we're sinning. How about where it says to reconcile with a brother? We hold our grudges. We refuse to, to reconcile and, and work things out. We're sinning. But sometimes sin is unintentional. This is where we forget to perform an obligation or we overlook an obligation. It's an unplanned or it's an accidental evil. Now some people have difficulty with this, an unplanned or accidental evil. How, how can I be held accountable for this? How can you be responsible for doing something or not doing something that you don't even know about? How, how, how can God hold you responsible for that? Well, let me give you an example out of human life. Anybody ever drive along the highway, look down at their speedometer and suddenly go, I'm going 55 and it's only a 35 zone? So you didn't mean to speed, but you were still speeding. You were breaking the law. Now speeding is what's called, or it's not called a specific intent violation. You don't have to mean to speed to break the speeding law. You just have to speed. No intent is required. When the police officer goes to testify against you in court, he doesn't have to say, and, I, and he meant to speed because he said this or he did that. All he has to do is prove that you were speeding. That's it. This is different than a specific intent crime, such as intent to defraud with your registration. There's a number of things you can do, and if you do them with the intent to defraud the state of your registration fees, that's a specific intent crime, and we have to prove the intent behind it. So likewise, unintentional sin is still sin. You don't have to mean to do it. You only have to break or fail to keep one of God's commands. Now you've heard the old saying, ignorance of the law is no excuse. Well, ignorance of God's law is no excuse. God doesn't have an excuse in there that says, well, it's okay if you don't know my law. And I want you to think about this for a minute, why that, that makes sense. If ignorance of the law was an excuse, if God wouldn't hold your sin against you if you did something wrong, if you violated his law, what's the easy way not to, not to have to worry about it? Don't read your Bible. Don't learn God's law. You can't be held responsible for what you don't know, so don't read his word. Is that really what God wants us to do, is ignore reading his word? No, we're responsible for reading his word. So I want you to consider Psalm 119.1. The psalmist writes, your word I have hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. You see, the psalmist has studied God's word. He's learned it. He's hidden it in his heart so that he doesn't sin. Now, in case you're still a little concerned about it, understand that God considered unintentional sins when he established the sacrificial system in Leviticus 5 and in Numbers 15, he considered unintentional sins in there. So there's no free pass on there. We're responsible for knowing what God tells us. We're responsible for keeping God's law, whether intended or not. If we don't, we're sinning. Well, let's move on to the third problem. In verse 2, it says, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Well, here's a third kind of sin, iniquity. Iniquity is a conscious or intentional act of wrongdoing. A conscious or intentional act of wrongdoing. 
You see, you mean to do this sin. This isn't unintentional. This isn't one of those that slipped by. You know it's wrong. You want to do it anyway. Why is that? Sometimes it feels good. Sometimes you want to take one more look at things you shouldn't look at. You want to take one more drink. It's that feeling of getting even or maybe getting the last word in in an argument. So you know what the law is. You know what God commands. You don't want to do it. You just don't feel like obeying God. So this is a case where you love the sin more than you love God. You love the sin more than you love God. And then there's the fourth problem. And that's the problem of deceit. And deceit is a heart condition. You see, deceit is the denial of sin. It's the denial of sin. And if you think about Proverbs 30, 20, and there it says, the adulteress wipes her mouth and says, I have done no wrong. She just eats and goes, I haven't done anything wrong. That's a complete denial of sin. It's a refusal to acknowledge what you've done. You're not admitting it. You're denying it. You're denying it in your heart. You're denying it in your mind. And you're denying it before God. But Proverbs 6.17 tells us God hates a lying tongue. And it's not unimportant that this is included in these first two verses. Transgression, sin, iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Because you're not acknowledging your sinfulness. You see, deceit compounds the whole problem. It means you have a hard heart. It means you have a stone heart. You don't want to change. You don't want to admit your sin. You don't want to bring it before God. You don't want to repent of it. You're just going to deny it. Now for all of this, Psalm 32 is not an indictment of sin. At first it seems that way from what we've been talking about, but it's really not an indictment of sin. Rather, this is a psalm of contrition and repentance. David's not condemning the sin here. It's a psalm of thanksgiving and wisdom. He's giving us wisdom about confessing, about reconciling to God. Again, he doesn't tell us that the one who committed these unnamed transgressions, these sins and iniquities is condemned. He tells us that the person is blessed because they're not counted against him, because he's forgiven, because his sin is covered. He's blessed because all of these sin problems are resolved by God's forgiveness. It says transgression is forgiveness. You see, forgiveness is God's complete pardon of our sins. Forgiveness is his complete pardon of our sins. We're released from the debt of sin. Completely released from it. There's no debt hanging over our heads. And this is because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. He paid that debt for us. He died for our sins, so we don't carry that debt anymore. But beyond that, Luke 5 tells us that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. That's a wonderful thing. And Jesus has vested the authority to forgive sins. And in Matthew 26, he tells us, as he offers the cup, that this is the cup of the new covenant, his blood, which is for the forgiveness of sins. You see, if our transgressions are to be forgiven, they're forgiven through the blood of Jesus Christ. But even more than being forgiven, we're reconciled to God. 
You see, true forgiveness always involves reconciliation. If you truly forgive someone, you become reconciled to them. That separation between you is gone because you're not holding that debt against them. Vengeance is holding that debt to collect it another time. But we know that God says, vengeance is mine, he will repay. That's why vengeance, taking vengeance is never right for a Christian. It's in the province of God. But we're to forgive. Colossians 3 tell us, forgive as you have been forgiven. And this leads to a reconciliation. And so today I would ask you, is there someone you're holding something against? Is there someone who you need to forgive? Or do you need to be forgiven by someone? Well, brothers and sisters, go and meet with them. Extend that forgiveness, receive that forgiveness, and be reconciled, because that's what God tells us to do. Rather than carry that burden and that weight, well, I won't talk to them when I see them. I'll go the other way. I'll avoid them. Be reconciled. And we are reconciled to God. Remember, we were enemies of God, but he has reconciled us to him, and he's reconciled us to him through Christ. He tells us that in Romans and in 2 Corinthians and in Colossians. We are reconciled to God through Christ. And then looking on, the sin of the one who is blessed is covered. A sin that is covered is equated with forgiveness. The iniquity of the one who is blessed is not counted against him. We read in 2 Corinthians 5.19, In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. You see how Jesus is shown in this passage. He's reconciling the world to, uh, to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And in Acts, Peter says of Jesus, there is no salvation, or there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You see, forgiveness and reconciliation comes only through Jesus Christ. It's not on our own. So from these two verses, we see that David is proclaiming. He proclaims that the one who is blessed is the one whose sins are forgiven in Christ. Now let's look at the blessing forsaken. This is in in verses three and four. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. So here in these two verses, David is describing that miserable condition one experiences absent the forgiveness of God. He's miserable. He says, when I kept silent, he's talking about unconfessed sin. You see, there's no repentance unless sin is confessed. You can't repent of something you don't acknowledge. And unless sin is confessed, There can be no forgiveness, and unless sin is confessed, there can be no reconciliation. You have none of these things. That's because you've kept silent. But look what the results of this is. He said, my bones wasted away. He's talking about the physically debilitating effects of sin and what it has on a person. Think of that image. My bones wasted away. Bones, they're the support structure, the frame of our body. Some of us are large frames, some of us are small frame, some of us are in between. But it's what forms the structure of our body, it holds us together. But when they're, they're wasting away, they're atrophying. 
How many of you ever had a broken arm or a broken leg and had to wear a cast or, or something like that where you didn't, you didn't have use of that limb? When they took the cast off, what happened? Your arm was smaller than the other one or your leg was smaller than the other one. Years ago when I was a young detective, I had a, a serious knee injury um, that I incurred during a drug bust. And I had to have surgery on it and I had to wear a cast or I had to wear a, um, a brace that went from heel to hip and I had to wear that for six weeks after the surgery. A few weeks into that, I had to go to the doctor's office and they, they took the brace off and they had to take a, a plaster cast of my knee so they could make a permanent brace for me. And when they took the brace off and I, I looked at it, my knee was bigger than my upper leg. The circumference of my knee was bigger than my upper leg. My muscle had atrophied so much. As I'm sitting there at the end of the, the table and the physician's assistant is taking the cast and he's doing his measurements, he kind of looks at my face as I'm looking down with that shock on, on it as I'm just looking at my leg muscle just kind of dangling. And he goes, pretty ugly. And I go, yeah. He goes, just a lot of wasted flesh. And I go, exactly. And that's immediately what I thought of when he said, my bones wasted away. You see here, his entire frame was dissolving before him. He lost his strength. He had nothing. Now, there's no record of this ever happening to David from the incident with Bathsheba. See, there's nothing that we have in 2 Samuel about that. So maybe Psalm 32 wasn't about David and Bathsheba like Psalm 51 was. If Psalm 51 was about David and Bathsheba, it was written before 32, but we don't know what sins David's talking about here. But recognize that David's, David did not sin only with Bathsheba. David had other sins as well. So here he's just talking about a general condition, but we don't know what the specifics are. But as we look further on in verse three, he says, through my groaning. See, groaning about your problems does not equate with confessing your sin. You can groan all day long if you want, but until you've confessed, all you've done is groan. That's it, you've groaned. Then David says, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. Day and night, there's no relief here. He doesn't get a respite from this. The guilt is oppressive. God is pressing down on him and making him aware of his sin. God placed within each of us a conscience and David's is in overdrive. God is telling him, you've done wrong. And when he's weighed down by sin, you can't do much. The guilt is overwhelming. It's like carrying a burden on your shoulders. It's just pressing you down. Think for a moment of the Pharisees. See, they placed a tremendous burden on the people with their laws. They forced the people to keep many laws that God hadn't told them to keep. These were man-made laws. And I have to ask you, how many false religions burden people with laws that were never in the Bible? Just things that we do by tradition. We do it because we've done it in history. They become rituals. How many of these false religions require you to work for your salvation? You have to earn your way to heaven. They deny the free gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. Because you see, we are not saved by our works, we are saved by faith. Jesus told us his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Paul tells us that Christ has set us free and we're not to submit again to a yoke of slavery. That's slavery to sin, slavery to the law. See, we can't work our way out of sin. It can't be done. But the good news is we only need to confess our sins and repent and receive the promise of forgiveness by Jesus Christ. He's the one that lifts that burden from our shoulders. 
Then David writes, my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Now think about those days of triple digit heat. We don't get a whole lot of them here in Hollister. That's a well-kept secret. How many of you, every time you tell someone I live in Hollister, oh, it gets really hot down there. Yeah, maybe three days of the year, maybe five. But you go on, keep thinking it's hot down there. We're good. But it cools off around here in the afternoon. And in the evenings, it sometimes gets downright cold. And that's in the middle of July. But see, when we're hot, when we really are in, in tremendous heat, we sweat, our energy evaporates, we get that listless feeling. It, it wears us out. It's hard, to, it's hard to keep up. We just kind of want to lay around. And there's an important part. If we don't keep hydrated, you could suffer a serious medical emergency. Heat is not a good thing when it comes to health like that. We have to, we have to preserve our, our hydration. We have to stay, stay well-focused and we have to maintain ourselves. David says, my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. He paints a very vivid picture that we all can relate to. Well, I want you to think about the Samaritan woman at the well. What did Jesus tell her? If you'd asked, I would give you living water. Living water. The water of salvation, the water of eternal life. Now for these two verses, it's important to understand this heavy toll is not designed to punish us. This wasting away, this groaning, this heavy hand, this drying up of strength, this was not designed to punish anybody. You see, punishment for sin comes from death and hell. That's our punishment. But rather, this toll, this wasting away, this, this loss of energy, all these things, it's designed to bring the sinner to confession and repentance. That's God working on the heart of the sinner, saying, come to me, come to me. So if your conscience is weighing on you, ask yourself, what sins have I not confessed? What am I holding back from God? If you haven't confessed your sins and repented and received the blessings of forgiveness, do so. That's what God's trying to tell you. What's stopping you from confessing your sin? What's stopping you from accepting the forgiveness of God? Do you realize, as David has pointed out, that if you refuse to confess your sin, if you refuse to repent, refuse to receive the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, you're forsaking the blessing. This is a blessing forsaken. Well, the next section is receiving the blessing or the blessing received. Let's look at Psalm 32, 5. I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. You see here, David acknowledged his sin before God. To acknowledge something is to realize its truth and validity. You're recognizing it. You're not holding it back. You're acknowledging it by recognizing its, its truth and validity. Now, he's not telling God something he doesn't already know. Hebrews 4.13 tells us, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to him to whom we must give account. Listen again to that carefully. No creature is hidden from his sight. That's all of us but all are naked and exposed to him to whom we must give an account. One day we all give an account and there's no way to hide anything. 
So when you tell God, when you confess, when you acknowledge your sin before God, you're not telling him anything God doesn't already know. But it's a condition of your heart. See, David writes that he did not cover his iniquity. Now this is different than the Lord covering iniquity that we read back in in verse one. You see, when the Lord covers iniquity, he blots it out. He doesn't consider it. When we cover iniquity, we're concealing it. We're hiding our sin from God. We're denying it. We're not acknowledging it. We're hiding it. See, covering iniquity is also covering our bases. Now remember what iniquity is? It's the intentional act of wrongdoing. When you cover your sin, when you cover your iniquity, you're not showing repentance for it. You're trying to hide it. And this is evidence that you don't have a changed heart. Your heart is just as stone and just as cold as before. Now, you might semi-confess because you got caught. Because you want to get out of the consequences. How many times have you done that? How many times have your kids done that? Have you suspected your kids are doing that? Yeah, I'll, I'll confess. I'll admit it. Yeah, right. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's not a real confession. It's not a real repentance. You just don't want the consequences. And this is deceit. Remember back to verse 2. This is deceit in your heart. See, no forgiveness occurs because there's no true confession. Because you're hiding it from God. You're trying to conceal it. So instead, David writes, I will confess my transgression to the Lord. Remember transgression, the act of rebellion or disloyalty. David is confessing his heart. When he confesses his act of rebellion or disloyalty, he's going beyond just the act. He's confessing what was in his heart at the time he did it. Not just the sin, but the attitude. This is no mere acknowledgement. He's not saying, yes, I sinned, I was wrong. I was rebelling against you, God. That was a wrong thing for me to do. I had the wrong attitude. He's agreeing with God that he did something wrong. See, that's what confession is. Confession is agreeing with God. You're recognizing the validity that you're wrong and God's right. And what was the result of that? Well, God forgave the iniquity of his sin. He forgave the intentional wrong that the psalmist had done. See, David missed the mark intentionally, but God forgave him. His groaning did not bring relief. It was only through confession and repentance that David received forgiveness and received the blessing of forgiveness. Then let's look at verses six and seven. As we consider the blessing commended. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Now, anytime you see a therefore in the scriptures, you want to pay attention to the therefores. David is pointing to a principle we can learn from his experience. He's looking back and saying, therefore, because of this, and now here's a principle. He says, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Timeliness is important. So you don't know the day and time of your departure from this earth. Consider the parable of the rich man and Lazarus that we find in Luke. You know the one where the the rich man had died and Lazarus, the poor man, had died? And they find themselves separated by chasm. The rich man who lived in luxury in his life is now in, in torment and fire and pain. And poor Lazarus is lying in the bosom of Abraham. 
And the rich man is saying, you know, help me, help me, send, send someone over here. Come here, just give me a, a, a drop of water. And Abraham says, you can't. There's that chasm's too big. And he says, well, can you send Lazarus back? Can you send someone back to tell my family, hey, pay attention because you'll die in your sins. And Abraham says, they got Moses and the prophets. If they're not listening to them, why are they gonna listen to anybody else? You see, we have Moses and the prophets. We have the scripture. If we don't listen to scripture, who are we gonna listen to? You see, it was too late for the rich man. He died in his sins. Consider the parable of the rich fool, who's also in Luke. This is a guy who stored up riches for himself, got very wealthy. He sat back one night and just talked about how rich he was, and he was going to tear down all his grain silos and build others, and he was just going to eat and relax and enjoy life because he stored everything up. And God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? See, this guy counted on years of ease and luxury. He didn't think about eternity. But instead, that very night, his life ended. And he was doomed to spend an eternity apart from God. It was too late for him. We don't know when our last day is. Time is counting down for all of us. Don't be foolish and think you have plenty of time to confess. You don't know when your time is over. Turn from your sin now and accept the forgiveness offered by Christ. David writes, surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. Now some areas of our country are often subject to flash floods when it gets a heavy rain. We've seen that happen. And these rivers that form in these flash floods are very powerful. They sweep away people. They sweep away cars. People have been carried away to their deaths by these floods. My brother is a pastor in Texas and he's a chaplain for a sheriff's office uh, in Austin. And they had a deputy that was killed in one of these flash floods just a couple months ago. Very dangerous. They come upon you suddenly. But you see what David is telling us is those who have confessed can't be harmed by these spiritual flash floods, this onslaught of overwhelming guilt. Jesus told us that everyone who comes to him and hears his words and does them is like a man who when building his house dug deep and laid his foundation on a rock. And when the flood arose, when the waters came, it couldn't shake it because it had been well built. But those who hear Jesus' words and don't do them are like the man who built his house without a foundation. When the waters broke against this man's house, the house fell apart and, and its ruin was great. You see, when the rush of great waters comes, we're not gonna be harmed. They're not gonna reach us. We've built our foundations on the rock. Paul tells us that Jesus is our spiritual rock. So I have to ask you, on what is your foundation built? Is it built on your good works? They won't last. They'll burn away. Is it built on your keeping the law and all these burdens and all these things that are, are laid on you? It won't last. It'll be blown away. The only sure foundation is Jesus Christ. Then, Paul sa or then David says, you're a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble, from the guilt of sin. Paul writes that our lives are hidden with Christ. So when we're hidden, we're hidden with Christ. David writes, you surround me with shouts of deliverance. Well, shouts of deliverance and songs of deliverance are throughout the Bible. Consider Exodus 15 after Pharaoh and his armies were swept away by the, the Red Sea after the Israelites crossed. Moses wrote a song commending that and praising God for that. In Judges 15, there was a song of deliverance. It was sung by Deborah and Barak. 
Throughout the Psalms, there are shouts of, and songs of praise to God. Now here, David is speaking of shouts of deliverance. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 tells us our deliverer is Christ. See, David here has commended the blessing. But now the narrative is gonna shift away from David and it's gonna be, instead of David speaking, it's gonna be God speaking. So let's look at verses eight and nine. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. See, God is speaking here. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. Some things to note from this verse. It's God doing the instructing. This isn't David doing the instructing. It's God doing the instructing. God is the source of wisdom. And here he's making a promise to give instruction in the way we should go. So this is the blessing promised, the blessing counseled. He's making a promise to give us this instruction. Jesus tells us, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. God says he'll instruct us and teach us in the way we should go. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. God says, I shall counsel you with my eye upon you. Parents, do you keep an eye on your children? Of course you do. You keep an eye on our children. You do so to protect them from danger and harm. You don't want them to get hurt. It's because you have their best interests at heart. God counsels us with the same intent. He keeps his eye upon us. He wants to deliver us from unrighteousness. He tells us not to be like the horse or the mule. Now you've all heard the phrase, stubborn is a mule. You know mules. Mules go where they want to go, and they don't go where they don't want to go. If he doesn't want to move, you have to fight him. If the mule, if the mule moves, and you, don't, and you want him to stop, and he doesn't want to stop, you have to fight him. You see, mules are a pretty rebellious and independent lot. Sound familiar? God says, don't be like them. Horses and mules, they need bridles and bits. They need to be controlled. They don't do so willingly. You have to control them. You see, being stubborn is not a good thing. Israel often is referred to as being stubborn and hard-headed and hard-hearted. They rebelled time and again from following the Lord. But nevertheless, God still promised that he would send his Messiah despite their rebellion. He said, listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness, I bring my righteousness. It is not far off. And my salvation will not delay. I will put my salvation in Zion for Israel is my glory. See, the, righteous of God, our salvation, uh, the righteousness of God, our salvation, is Jesus Christ. And he brought his righteousness. So here God is counseling in the way of blessing. Don't ignore him. Walk in the way. And then in verses 10 and 11, we find the celebration of blessing. This is where blessing is celebrated. 10 and 11 read, Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. You see, now we've come to the end of the psalm. David writes, many are the sorrows of the wicked, 
Look back to verses three and four where he talks about his bones wasting away. He's groaning all day long. The heavy hand of God is dried up as in the heat of summer. He's wasting away. God's hand was upon him. He's got no strength. You see, the wicked are afflicted. Romans 2.9 says, there will be tribulation and distress for every human who does evil. And although you may not feel it now, if you have not placed your faith, your confidence, your salvation in Jesus Christ and in him alone, be very assured that your tribulation and your stress are coming. But it doesn't have to be that way. David writes, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Jesus said that the Father loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. So make no mistake about it. If you love the Lord Jesus Christ and believe on his name, God the Father loves you. And this then is the reason to celebrate. And David's able to write, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. This is the celebration of the blessing that we have through Christ, through the forgiveness of our sins, through the reconciliation with God. So I have to ask you in your heart, are you rejoicing now? Are you rejoicing over Jesus Christ? Are you reconciled to God through Jesus Christ? If so, rejoice, for you are made righteous. But perhaps you're holding on to your sin. Maybe you're that stubborn, rebellious mule. If so, I pray that you come to Christ and you do so quickly. Because you never know when God will say, this night your soul is required of you. So I have to ask you, what's stopping you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have every reason to rejoice and to celebrate. We have the salvation. We have the forgiveness of sins. We are reconciled to you through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Lord, this this overcomes guilt. This overcomes sin. This overcomes that oppression. Father, despite whatever trials we feel in this life, we know that our eternity is secure with you, that you love us. You love us because not of what we've done, not of become, uh, because of rites and rituals that we've kept, not because of works, but because of faith, because of faith in your son, the finished work of Christ. Father, I pray that everyone who hears these words puts his faith and belief in Jesus. True forgiveness, true reconciliation, not from a heart of deceit, not from covering things up, but from openly admitting what you already know, confessing to you, agreeing with you, Lord, we praise you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.